Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Tonight's guest is Katra McMillan. She's a globalist who's focused on injustice, um, strong social entrepreneurial streak, uh, which led to empowering communities to access education. I would recommend that before or after this podcast, you jump on YouTube, jump on the Hello World website and just have a look at the hubs that she's created. Absolutely fantastic. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, Mark. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank you for having me. No, brilliant. And, um, you know, really looking forward to getting into your founder story, um, going back to sort of projects for all um, and uh, your your latest, latest uh, venture, which is Hello World, which is all connected. So really looking forward to that. Um, I just wanted to check with you on like surviving lockdown. How how's the global <laughs> pandemic been for you? Well, you know, I- we are extremely privileged and um so we we had a great lockdown um if i wasn't um worrying about the sort of bigger picture and uh, um, my friends and colleagues in uganda and nepal then actually we were as a family extremely content i had a i gave birth to a lockdown baby um and uh so having a newborn in lockdown you know it's it's quite a nice time to have a little bubble as a family and and we made the most of it um so yeah fantastic congratulations thank you thank you so much yeah so how many children have you got i've got four all together and i think you have two haven't you we have we (laughs) we met each other there so mine sort of range from 15 downwards how about you amazing okay well i'm gonna need some tips i've got a seven-year-old a six-year-old a three-year-old and a four-month-old um and uh and actually in hello world is eight years old. So Hello World has happened simultaneously to the to, to grown in tandem with my family, um, which, you know, might account for some some stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, gosh, that's incredible. Well, um, well, yeah, happily pick up on that outside this call. <laughs> Thank um, you. What, what an incredible career you've had. And, and you know, as we can say, we're going to deep dive into that but a couple of stats and researching this podcast stood out for me which is just the really the huge number of children that do not have access to education and and um that clearly has been a you know real motivator for you mm. and some stats like 30 million in children in sub-saharan africa mm. um even bigger stats you know globally mm. uh huge numbers could, could you just describe um, what Hello World is and, and where, where it is at the moment. Mm-hmm. So Hello World is <clears throat> Hello World is our response to the global education deficit, which, as you've as you, as you've said, is is appalling. It's heart stoppingly um, uh, urgent. Uh, the education deficit, two hundred but pre COVID, two hundred and sixty five million children at a conservative estimate go without access to education. Um, and as worrying, uh, there are a great many millions of children who are in substandard schools with uh, a, 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 a lack of quality education. So quality and quantity are both a problem. 
Um, on top of that, there are 69 million too few teachers to hit our woefully low global education targets. Um, so, uh, and beyond that, even if we did have all of the money um, from everyone who's providing funding to uh, tackle the education deficit and provide uh, uh, quality education globally, if we applied all of that money from all of the funders out there and we applied it to building schools and hiring and resourcing uh, schools, with teachers, we wouldn't come close to ending the education deficit. And that basic arithmetic should tell us that a new paradigm for education is urgently needed, one that's um, affordable and uh, high quality, sustainable and, and scalable. If we really believe that education is your human right, then we, we need that. And Hello World was designed to try and respond to that massive need. Um, and, and what we do is we partner with communities in places where there are too few schools or no, no schools, and we teach them to build their own outdoor solar powered internet connected computer kiosks that has eight screens that are loaded with educational software, but it also is Wi-Fi enabled and it is a, a mini power station and has charging points for people to use for their own power needs and a community meeting space as well. They're outdoors, Fantastic. so they're weather resistant and um, they can survive thousands of kids tapping away day and night. Yeah. And I've seen, had a real pleasure of seeing this in action on the videos that you've created. And uh, so they're called Hello Hubs. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. And they uh, look incredibly durable. I love the fact they draw on solar energy. Yeah. Um, what really struck me actually is the kind of um, age range, like from right. look like very young from two years right yeah. through the age groups is yeah. that right yeah that's true yeah mm. that's been and, and that's actually surprised us as well i really didn't i didn't realize before we there were a lot there was so much i didn't know before we began but i certainly didn't realize quite how young our learners would be um and, and how old as well and one of the things that sugata mitra taught me early on sugata mitra did all of the research in, in into what he called the hole in the wall and we based a lot of our um, methodology on his research and we, we lent on and borrowed what he'd learned over over decades of, of research into children becoming autodidactic with access to the internet and digital tools and one of the things that he said to me was um, you have to make your hubs relevant to grannies as well to the, to the grandmothers in the community every age in the community because you can guarantee that if grandmothers find that children are coming home a little later and doing uh, less available to do their chores because they're sitting learning working playing communicating at the hello hub then it's going to be the grandmother who comes and takes a crowbar to the hub and destroys it so you've got <laughs> to find her space at the hub as well and value and connectivity for her and i think it was it was amazing advice because I, I came across a word or a, um, an anagram, self-organized learning mm. environment. So, yeah. so that is, was that his thesis? Like, is he, it, yeah. Just describe him a little bit as well. Sugata Mitra is um, an academic researcher who won the TED Prize in 2013 um, following an unbelievably well-received and, and widely watched TED talk called the school, Help Me Build a School in the Cloud. Um, Sugata set out to try and understand quite how far a child can take their, their education with digital tools. And at, at, at the start, what he wanted to do was kind of prove the end point to learning. He wanted to, to work out what, you know, 
what what they couldn't do with, with, when they were autodidacts learning with digital tools. And the children that he was working with in Bangladesh just smashed his expectations of where that end point would be. They took their education so much further, uh, deep into quantum physics, um, and they started asking questions that the best quantum physicists in the world are, are still asking um, pretty quickly. And um, I think at that point he realized that there was an extraordinary opportunity for children to learn if you kind of get out of their way and give them tools that they need. Um, I came across Shigata Mitra's TED talk when I was living with the Hammer tribe in um, South Omo on the Ethiopian border with Kenya. And I was really, really preoccupied with and frustrated by the global education deficit. And it was something that it, with all of the other projects that I'd been kind of working on and building. And um, the one thing that I kept coming back to is that you can't really have a functional um, community or society. You can't have a functional economy if there is widespread lack of education. And certainly you don't have a fair yeah. start in life if that's the case either. And I kept coming across derelict schools that had been built by well-intentioned, generous philanthropists that didn't take into account the reality of um, ongoing funding needs, the teacher deficit, resource deficit, intergenerational lack of education, the fact that children work, all sorts of societal and financial variables. And these derelict school buildings were driving me bananas. Um, yeah. And I came across one in, in South Omo, which, is, which was, I found pretty extraordinary, particularly given that it's a nomadic community. Um, and I got on the phone to a friend and I was expressing what year, my what frustration. Year this, what year was Just... that? It must have been... It would, it would have been um, 2009, 2009, yeah. 2009, 2009 yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he sent me Sugata Mitra's TED talk, um, which I watched with a sort of tiny patch of Wi-Fi somewhere in the desert. Um, and I... I had had a sense that, that that digital tools, I mean, I'm not really very techie, and I had a sense that digital tools were gonna be part of the solution that that I was casting about for and had been for years. But Sugata really unlocked for me what, what was possible. Um, and I started hounding him uh, to, to try and get him to take a call with me. <laughs> Was that hard? Well, you know, he was really, I mean, he's a big deal. He he raised an enormous amount of money. He's done this incredible research. He's written, he's done this TED talk that literally everyone, I mean, I think I was the last person in the world to see. Um, so, he, yeah, he was definitely in demand. Um, but, you know, to his great credit, after a few, I, I just called him and um, I tracked down his phone number. I think I tracked down his mobile phone number. And, you know, he was a bit skeptical for the first few minutes, but then he took my call. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I and I kind of want to um, that clearly was that was a light bulb moment, right, for you in terms of yeah. this, th these projects. Um, could, just to sort of pause for a minute and go back a bit, if that's okay. So, yeah. um, in, in the making of this podcast, I did a bit of research and, and realized we had something in common. Um, I lived in Bristol for a significant amount of time, and you <laughs> you went you you went to Bristol Uni and studied English and drama. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, how was that? You know, I didn't love university, actually. I thought the university was just going to be kind of Woodstock revisited and one long protest march and this unbelievably sort of a melting pot of activism and ideas and excitement and drama. And I found it to be quite sort of staid. I just found lots of sort of Hooray Henrys driving around in their polos wearing gilets and um, sort of you know, there was kind of, I mean, I'm old enough that when I walked into the breakfast hall, there were loads of Etonians braying and banging the table because they'd never seen a woman before. So it was, 
you know, I actually for me it wasn't. It, I didn't love it. Um, I actually had a would it be fair to say? <laughs> okay, let's, let's hear about that. Um, I think I've, I think I've. Uh, um, well, I've got a saying about um, Bristol Bristol University students that they're. Uh, I think. <laughs> intelligent but lazy so too intelligent enough to go to oxford or cambridge but um couldn't be asked (laughs) yeah 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 oh god definitely i mean it's definitely full of oxbridge rejects um but then i would say that um i would say that i mean you know i'm I'm 42 and i actually don't think that um i think that i i mean i would question maybe even i mean there's loads of intelligent people um at, at bristol no doubt but actually more problematically it's just a it's a it's a it's on the receiving end of the kind of public school funnel so you'd have to be unbelievably stupid not to get into um one of the top universities uh, with the kind of private education that most it's of those that. children get you know yeah, so yeah, yeah. i mean you really you really really have to be failing not 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 to get in in my view um because you're incredibly driven like you <laughs> you know and look and looking at your story like um we're going to go into it but uh you know New York, Australia, Nigeria, uh, London, like you've been all around the world and all of your roles have been incredibly purposeful and, and, you know, big picture. And, um, but, but going back pre-university and your, and your upbringing, your childhood, Mm. where did, where do you think that focus and drive came on helping others from? Um, I think in terms of wanting to be useful, um, uh, I think it, I, my father was South African, my mum's Australian. Um, conversations about social justice were commonplace and daily in our home and around our kitchen table. Um, I, I, I think it comes in part from being old enough to watch Mandela walk to freedom and understand the significance of that um, and wanting to be part of change like that. I think that was a really mm. instrumental moment for me. Um, and, um, so I, I, yeah, I, I, I think it, it's also a desire to see the world and to see it in a way that wasn't, um, exploitative, um, or at least I hope, I always hoped wouldn't be, um, I'm dyslexic. I'm, I'm profoundly dyslexic. And I, I was told that I was, I was told by one of my headmistresses that I was only fit for the stage, um, which I think she, she really intended to be a great, a great insult. And I took sort of quite literally as an, as an instruction. (laughs) Mm. Um, And, and so I didn't really know, I, I don't think until a bit later on that I was really interested in, in issues relating to social justice and politics, human rights, uh, international development. I, I didn't really feel like I had many choices. I, I felt that I, I kind of, I had, to, I mean, I loved, I, I'd found a voice uh, at school in theatre, in theatre work. Um, and, and I enjoyed it a lot. And I, I loved the kind of community side of working in the theatre. Um, but it wasn't until I was working as a theatre producer that I realised that um, the themes of the of, of the work that I was producing uh, tended towards humanitarian human rights issues, political issues, and I just hadn't I hadn't even noticed that till a girlfriend of mine pointed it out after yeah, a particularly yeah. dark production about Abu Ghraib, I think. Um, and at that point, I think I felt I, my confidence had grown, and I felt like maybe I had maybe I had maybe I had enough ability to kind of transition and, and work in um, international development. Because the, the last, more well, a recent founder that I interviewed, a guy called Joseph Russo, 
also, also dyslexic, and he described dyslexia as his super superpower. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice so way of he it. he just he described. Uh, he said he was from a good home and supportive mm. parents, but mm. what dyslexia did is it gave him some loneliness in childhood, and and definitely was kind of those challenges gave him more empathy. Would you say did it have effects on you when you were growing up? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I I, mean, I I think I wouldn't change it. Um, I um, and I think that you know I think he's right. I think with a supportive, nurturing family, I, I think it, it 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 can be in in many ways a gift. Um, it taught me how to work. I think most of all, I think that I, I don't know if I don't know if that's how I developed empathy. I I, I feel like that might have been kind of always there, but it definitely taught me how to work and how to how to solve problems. I had to had to figure out how to learn all on my own um, in the shed at the end of my parents' garden um, if I was going to just passed my exams and mm. it took a lot of work to to I, I you know I, I, I learned I learned really early on how to work hard and how yeah. to struggle and not be too embarrassed by sort of failure um so I think kids who are naturally really academic sometimes you know they find their first failure really a setback whereas I've been having no I've been having them forever um yeah. just my life was a litany of failures academically um, and not much was expected of me. So in a way, the pre- not, not from my family, but from, from school. So in a way, the pressure was off to, to carve out my own path, what, whatever it was going to be. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there were ways, loads of ways that dyslexia has really helped me. But it, I think perhaps, I mean, it only, it only worked that out, this out more recently, but it seems so obvious. But you know, my, my work now is on alternative ways for children to educate themselves. Um, and I had to figure out how to educate myself in a in a school system that was not particularly um, in, uh, flexible and open to different learning styles. So yeah. I think it's you know unconsciously it certainly I, it will have uh, affected what I ended up doing with my life. Yeah, interesting that you as early on reflection. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Recently, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. really, yeah. so obvious as well. But yeah. I yeah it was yeah it only just worked that out. <laughs> yeah. So, so moving away from Bristol, and um, I kind of it lost you between the end of uni and uh, and for for about six years <laughs> in, terms, oh. in terms of my research. I'm I'm sure you knew what you were doing, but so 2001 to 2000 and, <laughs> 2005. What what was Catherine so McMillan up to then? That's so interesting that I buried it. Um, uh, so I worked in the theatre. I um, I I went to after university. I went to drama school. Um, and, uh, I, d- I did a year at drama school during which I worked out that I, I, um, well, I don't know what I worked out, but I, I think I worked out that I didn't really want to act. Um, but I didn't totally know that. Um, I and mean, I think I'm quite embarrassed by the part of my life that involves a bit of acting. And maybe that's why I've, um, I definitely yeah, not. <laughs> um, but I, I ended up, I, I kind of, I found myself from little, little bits and bobs, nothing, nothing in, in vaguely interesting or impressive in terms of acting, um, but producing a play that um, went to um, Edinburgh and it went to the Adelaide Festival, um, and it won awards, I think, in both. Um, and eventually, it transferred to a theatre in in New York called the Culture Project, um, and with it. Um, with the negotiation that went on between me and the culture project uh, during the negotiation that that went on uh, I was offered a job at the culture project as a producer at the culture project the culture project is a political theater that specializes in in in, you know in political political plays and um it was the 
most amazing place for me to land. Um, and um, I loved um, I loved working in a creative team. I loved working on some of those issues. Um, and I put together a festival called the Impact Festival, which was um, all across New York in universities and art, different art space in the street. And there was film, photography, theatre, dance, uh, spoken word, um, uh, debate. It was amazing. It was a kind of crash course in human rights. Mm. And one of the pieces of, uh, of that festival was a production of the, uh, a, a play of the, uh, of the book of Speak Truth to Power, Power, which was written by uh, Kerry Kennedy, but adapted for the stage by Ariel Dorfman. And um, I produced that run at the Culture Project, which had had the most extraordinary cast, a great number of whom became some of my closest friends. And the book is about 32 human rights defenders, no, 50, 52 human rights defenders from 32 countries. And it spans the full gamut of humanitarian and human rights um, atrocities and crises. And um, I became very involved in in that production and 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 its um, various iterations, um, and I got to know um, Kerry Kennedy and Nan Richardson, who were the kind of the team behind it, the powerhouses, the creator, the creators of it, of not only the book but the movement, the political uh, movement uh, behind it, and I ended up. Um, being offered a job to work for them um, as a as a producer and as the director of development, and so I I left Speak Truth, I left the Culture Project to go and work at Speak Truth to Power, which was this amazing marriage of theatre um, and arts and um, communications um, and advocacy and, and human rights advocacy, um, and uh, yeah, it was I think that was uh, that was perhaps my real education. Yeah, fantastic. So, Rob, that was at the Robert Kennedy Center for Justice and Human yeah. Rights. Is that yes, right? exactly. Yeah. It's the yeah. it's it's a project of the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial. Mm. And so, you know, what was it like? You you kind of enjoying the delights of New York. You got <laughs> this huge kind of life life changing stuff happening. Yeah. Um, where were you living in New York? What was it like? What was it? Oh, I loved living in New York. Um, I lived all over, and I think I started in my friend Benji's uncle Charlie's laundry room. Um, and I graduated to, I mean, I, I fell in love and I, I moved to Sunnyside with someone I met in Queens. And then I, I fell out of love and I moved back to London and then back to New York again. But I think that time I was in Williamsburg and then Henry Street and I bounced around all over the place. And I was in my 20s and I was in New York and sitting on my stoop drinking cocktails with amazing people I was meeting, you know, working on things I cared about. It was an, an absolutely golden time yeah. in my life. Um, Pinch yourself stuff. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing. My husband talks about it quite amusing. It was I wanted to move back to New York after we'd been living in Nigeria and Ethiopia because I felt like I kind of had unfinished business with the city um, and my husband des describes moving to New York I think about six years ago now um, as, as, as a, for him as a bit like showing up um, the, uh, like uh, the morning after a party to find the detritus of a party strewn all over your apartment and <laughs> someone random asleep on the sofa and that you know you'd kind of missed you'd missed the party but you were just there for the clean up <laughs> which I think is kind of New York in your 30s <laughs> that's brilliant yeah I know I, I, I was a similar experience in London you leave, to leave the party after kids arrive <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. so, so did you did you meet your husband in New York no, I met um, Tom. I met Tom in London. I kind of tumbled. I, I, I sort of 
tumbled back to London with a broken heart um, 15 years ago from New York and my tail between my legs, definitely feeling like it was one nil to New York and having kind of left what I was building in New York behind and feeling like my life was uh, kind of crippled in just so many ways. Emotionally, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my career at that point. I was back in London. I was living with my mother again. And I, I was, I was, you know, a bit bereft, well, I was, to, to say the least. And I, I got dragged to a party by a girlfriend of mine and I intended only to stay as long as um as long as it took to sort of get her talking to someone else and then leave and that was the party <laughs> at which I met my husband um and uh great but we've we've lived all over together yeah and what and uh, is he in a summer career to you or yeah he does he is he's, he's at the opposite end of the spectrum he's always he's when I when I met him he worked for the for the government for the British government um, first as a um, he helped to write the equality some of the, did some of the economic a- analysis for the 2006 Equality Commission and um, he went on to become a, 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 dip, a diplomat um, for the British government and then he went to work at DFID and now he works in impact measurement for a startup um, that he's co-founded called 60 decibels so he's, he's interested in how we account for social value um, uh, but it's completely the opposite end of the spectrum to me. So in a way, he's always been quite establishment and I've always been agitating in the kind of grassroots side of yeah. things. And, and it's, it's, it's provided a really, a really useful clash for us, I think. Um, mm-hmm. We've taken on board each other's ideas and I, I, I don't know if I'd have been able to, to do that unless I was quite literally living, living with the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, um, that sounds like a great mix. I mean, what strikes me, I hadn't mentioned it earlier, is, but you know, South African dad and a Australian mum, both countries who have um, issues around equality and human rights. Mm. Uh, Australia might not think they do, but yeah, um, they you do. know they have had. Yeah. Uh, and that and those those formative, all those kind of conversations, maybe arguments over the years, mm. like mm. apartheid, a big big part mm. of the narrative mm. for your mm. dad. Yeah. Look, I mean, I I spend a lot of time in both Australia and. South Africa, and definitely the, the you know the apartheid was 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 very visceral, very tangible. It was in full force uh, growing up. It was a constant conversation in my home. The first time I saw my father cry was was when I saw him perched on the edge of a table, glued to the television, watching Mandela walk to freedom. And I I was when I realised that you could cry tears of joy. I didn't know that before. Mm. Um, and Australia, you know, a profoundly racist place. Um, in denial about its own genocide and its ongoing um, inequality uh, with some, I think, fairly um, cursory uh, attempts to, um, well, uh, heal, perhaps. I mean, I think what Australia really needs is a truth and reconciliation like South Africa's. Um, and then, you know, really clear economic plans to level the playing field for um, an entire um you know, for the for, for for an entire people who have been marginalised systematically and intergenerationally, shut out of um, Australia's um, uh, opportunities. Um, mm. I, I would find it very difficult to live there. I think because of that denial of of the real scope of the problems. And perhaps it's different now, but um, yeah, I, I, I do find I do find that quite difficult. Yeah. Okay. And you, you know, moving kind of through your um, story and, and a country that you spent significant amounts of time in Nigeria. Um, 
yeah, tell me about that. So you, I've, I've got you down as um, Day News Media Limited Group Head of Corporate Strategy uh, <laughs> yeah. for the Silverbird Group, and you've and then you've moved on for that to fairly quickly to uh, consult, <laughs> consultancy role. Um, just describe the, maybe describe what that was all about and and what Nigeria was like for a young Brit. I loved being in Nigeria. I loved it. I um. Yeah, I went from, I was, I, I was trying to raise money for one of the Speak Truth to Power kind of expansions. I wanted to get the Speak Truth to Power Amnesty International Education curriculum um, kind of repurposed and rewritten for an African context. And I, I approached um, someone I'd been introduced to who um, ran Silverbird because I felt that they might be a funder. Um, and uh, that, that request for funding didn't didn't go very far but it did lead to this rather peculiar job offer um and you know I was completely unqualified for the job that I was offered so I said politely oh thank, thank you so much you know I'll, I'll I'll have a little think about it um thinking that that that, that wasn't going to be a good fit I'd also been offered a job at Oxford in the politics department uh thinking about um the Arab-Israeli crisis working on the Arab-Israeli crisis and uh th that felt like a, a more obvious fit for me yeah. um but I Tom and I my my uh, uh my now husband boyfriend at the time had broken up and I was in New York he was in London and he called me uh, on the same day that I was offered this rather peculiar job um and said uh or unusual not I mean just unexpected and he said um Look, you know, I've just called to let you know that if you if you don't want me to move out to New York and you're not gonna you're not gonna come to London, back to London, then I'm I'm gonna take a job in Nigeria, and <laughs> I said, being fairly competitive, so am I, um, and uh, so <laughs> I moved to Lagos. He moved to Abuja. I didn't actually, you know, take a good enough look at a map and realise that that's a forty five minute flight apart, um, and yeah, we had. Um, we had dinner. We had a we had a sort of a, a date in 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 Lagos um, again, and uh, but it was an amazing look. It was a really interesting thing. What I was interested in in terms of the job was how at that point in my career, what I was interested in finding out. Were, I, I think I I think I felt that I had I'd I'd done what I could in terms of political arts for for that for that time in my life at that at that moment. I, I felt a little bit like we were preaching to the choir. Um, and that I wanted to be a bit more hands-on, a bit more, I, I was ready to be a bit more uh, proactive about humanitarian and social issues. And, um, I, and I was also really interested in how social justice intersects with the corporate world and, and business and how businesses can be reframed to um, help promote and protect people's human rights. And I felt yeah. that I might be able to learn that in this role. So, you're, you, so you move from... Lagos to, to Abuja, uh, I guess, yeah. to be near Tom and, and to start this new initiative. What, just in terms of, before we get into the kind of what you did there, like personal safety, um, you know, you're an English woman in, in Nigeria, just describe like good, time, <laughs> good times, tough times, scary times, all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I was, I mean, I was, I, I was um, in, a, in a really privileged position. I lived in a, I actually lived in a hotel. Um, they never got around to finding me um, anywhere else to, to live, which was kind of supposed to be part of the deal. Um, and so I think I, I felt really safe. I would actually walk around Lagos. I really enjoyed walking around Lagos. I did have a driver, but um, it was much faster to walk. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I loved, I loved Lagos. I mean, it really is, there is nowhere better to, 
to go out partying. I mean, I've never come across anywhere better. Um, it, it's just an unbelievably energetic, vibrant, exciting city. And it's one that really has my heart. Um, I, the job that I was given, I think that they're, you know, I think that I, I don't think they really wanted me to do the job that they'd hired me to do. I think that they saw me potentially as someone because I'd been working for the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial and there were so many celebrities involved in that work. I think they probably saw me as someone who could offer them access to to all of that. And um, I think I quite quickly became a, a PR prop. I, I was this sort of random white woman who would get wheeled into all sorts of PR events um and um i don't think they really wanted me to do the job that that that, that i was sort of supposedly doing um yeah. and i found it fascinating um unpicking the real workings of that particular business and and what it, what it was what it actually existed to do um so and- on the face of it it talks about um the alliance for clean cook stoves um you've, you've pulled mm. together these corporate partners mm. Mm. Who were all invested? Mm. What What was the reality? What mm. was the? Well, that was a different project, actually. That wasn't part of. That right. wasn't Silverbird. Mm. So Silverbird was about. Oh, sorry. No, you yeah. moved on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Well, Sil- Silverbird was a was a, a massive media conglomerate, um, and actually, what it was for me was a crash course in how business gets done in that part of Africa and um, what the underlying kind of motivations and drivers are. Lots of the political stuff that's going on um actually in the background um and some of the sort of i mean you know it was really interesting learning how deals get done and to mm. and what's motivating people um and it you know i i, I really did uh, it, it really did skim off another layer of naivety and it, it gave me the ability to operate in nigeria myself and um feel really comfortable and confident navigating it. I met a lot of really interesting people. Um, I found myself in the most extraordinarily bizarre situations. Um, I had a death threat. You know, I found, we found ourselves once at one point, there was a, the owner of a a major bank um, invited Tom boating um or what tom thought would be on on, on his uh, sailing tom thought yeah um yeah. and uh we ended up the guy who had invited him tom said oh can i bring my girlfriend and so tom said yeah we're gonna go sailing um with, with this guy and anyway we get to the pier to the boat club and the guy's not there but he's got a whole load of um uh kind of um i don't know kind of fixers and bodyguards there waiting to greet us at nine in the morning with a whole load of Verve Clicquot and uh, and also it transpires quite a lot of prostitutes and it turns out that he I, I think was trying to show Tom a really good time <laughs> in an effort to exactly and I turned out I crashed the party in an effort to potentially either get photos of him uh, compromising photos of him possibly uh, uh, to help help him help help nudge him along towards a, a particular decision um, or to just ingratiate him I don't know I don't really quite know or or, or it was totally innocent who knows Um, but you know there were all of these amazing lessons in how business can be done Um, and uh, but yeah after that I am I was fired um, for some of my views on 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 what the business should and shouldn't be doing, um, yeah, yeah. and quite quickly left Lagos. I mean, immediately, um, yeah. and uh, I kind of landed in in Abuja, and I was pretty 
pretty burnt out, pretty exhausted. Um, and uh, that I was really, I was going to sit tight for a few weeks and just kind of let things percolate and work out what I wanted to do next. But I, that didn't happen. Um, and I was, you know, I was in this amazing, I had this amazing opportunity to respond to some of the, um, you know, uh, human humanitarian, human rights, um, justice issues that were going on on my doorstep and um mm. that was an amazingly exciting it was just a really happy and exciting time and mm. um i tested out quite a few things i did a bit of consultancy work which was cool and and interesting and showed me how the cogs of kind of big um development turn or don't turn sometimes um and that meant that i could afford to spend a, a lot of my time doing projects that I was designing and or devising or, or uh, and, and I really really cared about and was interested in and that's how I learned about community-led uh, development and I think developed a philosophy on, on that. Yeah and that and I really want to get into that actually because I, I really like the um, engage pilot assess and improve kind of model that you guys have and I think right. I, want, I want to go into that more depth. <laughs> Do you think do you think Tom and yourself would take your kids back to Nigeria? Like you, yeah, want, you want? Yeah, we would. Yeah, we definitely mm. would. We both. Mm. I mean, we really loved it. Um, you know, it's changed. Nigeria is always everywhere is changing, but it, Nigeria particularly is changing really, really fast. So it'd be really interesting to. I mean, I have been back since, um, but I think we would go back and live if there was an opportunity if something really exciting came up. And in fact, I'd love to get Hello World back there. So it might be that that would be the driving force. You yeah, that that might how- be amazing how are they how are they going with covid and that challenge i don't i mean i don't know actually mm. so much in nigeria how it's going um mm. but it's the youngest population um on the continent i mean the biggest and uh, the youngest as you know and um i i think what i'm under what i understand it's different obviously in every country but what i i what i'm seeing in with from friends and um colleagues in other countries that lockdown is creating a problem that's bigger than COVID for a youthful population, which is uh, poverty and starvation. And um, so I think perhaps you could argue that, um, the, the, you know, the continent with the youngest population is protecting the very, very, very tiny minority of people who have made it to old age on, on the mm. continent, who would also typically be the wealthiest people on the continent. Um and they're doing so they're paying for they're doing so they're protecting those those elderly people with with their own lives because if you can't work you can't eat yeah and paying the cost potentially mm. for that later in life right. so um projects for all starting to percolate mm. yeah. that, that kind of tran- transition to um this next phase of your life uh it, just give me a feel for the timeline and kind of how things evolved um I was. I think we were in Nigeria for, um, I guess, another two, two, two and a half, three years, um, and it's. Um, I. I mean, it, it was. It was. It, it. It was really organic. There were there were is- issues I was interested in. I you know I was I met people. Opportunities came up. Um, I met the most extraordinary woman called uh, Shireen, who had been living in Tanzania and running lots of women-led projects, making soap. And um, she taught me how to make soap in our kitchen. And um, we together taught some women at a a pottery centre called Bwari um, how to make soap. And that, you know, that kind of evolved and grew for a while. I um, got involved 
through um, an organization called DARE, um, uh, building the first ever energy autonomous house made out of recycled plastic bottles um, in Africa. Um, and that was an incredibly rewarding um, and exciting time. That made me feel quite interested in um, uh, I got I got quite interested in housing supply, housing stock, and the need for energy, a green, affordable housing. Um, I spent some time exploring that idea to, to absolutely no effect. That 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 was a total flop. Um, but I was really interested in how you could have kind of um, flat pack housing for the poor in in mm. in, in in miniature. Um, miniature factories that you could kind of move around state to state anyway it was um there were some amazingly yeah that just didn't work um uh but um there was uh, was that just too resource intensive i think it was i think it was i think it was very ambitious I, we couldn't find the backing in the country. There was a, an amazing, there were, there were kind of partners from Germany and various other places who were um, interested in pursuing it w with with me, uh, or rather I with them, I would say. Um, there was an, a comedy moment when we were in uh, one state of Nigeria. I've traveled to about, I think, 17 of Nigeria's states, which is just such a, an amazing part. It was, was an amazing part of my life. But we were in one state and we were proposing to the governor this plan for affordable uh, housing, affordable green housing. And we were in a, in a closed meeting. Um, you know, we were quite nervous. We traveled for, for, for a day or so to get there uh, to, to pitch to him. And he was completely mute throughout the course of the entire meeting. Um, and so I think we got increasingly, our, our pitch got increasingly sort of uh, rattled and, and nervy. Um, and uh, when we paused, um, he nodded and then um, pull, opened a drawer under his desk and in the drawer was a button um, and he pressed the button um, and the door flung open and in charged um, a, an in, uh, about three or four film crews and from the same drawer he picked out a microphone and he gave an impromptu press conference with us sitting there and in the press conference he said I'm so pleased to announce that we're going to be doing and he sort of prattled off some of the stuff that we'd been pitching affordable housing I'm yeah. going to be providing all of this housing for the poor um, you know it's going to be green it's going to be this it's going to be the other and then he sort of waved his hand and everyone left and we were yeah. all over the news um with this plan which of course just didn't happen um yeah. and that that kind of thing happened quite a lot well you know, crazy it, crazy experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but that's all kind of looking completely ridiculous nodding and smiling with the cameras pointing in our faces um but no so yeah there, yeah. there were there were some that worked and some that didn't and um <laughs> there was uh i think the one that i i found both upsetting but also rewarding was that um it was around the time of the um haitian disaster um and i felt frustrated and powerless um half a million people trapped underground under rubble um and i i was so i felt really traumatized to, to know that um and um at the same time uh, fighting broke out in joss um, ethnic fighting and th that that wasn't uncommon um, but it was a particularly brutal battle and it left a lot of people um, fleeing from their homes and gathering as refugees um, and uh, many many killed and injured um, and I felt I think the combination of feeling upset about the news internationally and and and, and locally um, 
drove me to organize the relief campaign for the victims of that ethnic fighting in Jos. And what was so rewarding about it is that a, a simple call to my friends and colleagues and neighbors um, resulted in this outpouring of generosity of both their wow. own donated goods, but lots, lots of people, mostly Nigerian people, spent enormous amounts of money uh, thinking very carefully about what their brothers and sisters in Jos would need. And that was obviously clothing, but food supplies. Um, I was very touched to find that my colleagues had thought about um, underwear, knickers and bras for their for their friends and colleagues and their sisters in Jos and um, hijab and appropriate coverings for them. And um, they had been out to, to Wasay and shopped and my house was floor to ceiling. And then I went to work, I was working at Management Sciences for Health at the time. And I tried to open my office door and it was it was just jammed with bags wow. of beans and rice. And I looked out of the window to see bag sacks so heavy that six of my colleagues had to carry them across the parking lot. So I contacted mm -hmm. the International Red Cross Crescent and asked them if they would join uh, join forces and lend their trucks and their distribution team and to their great credit they did so and um, mm. we packed up boxes and um, my neighbors and friends came over and we organized things into different uh, uh, different boxes and different sort of um, themes and that all got sent out and you know it was a it was an enormous pleasure to be able to respond I think so, so often we, all of us feels sad and powerless and that's a dreadful feeling yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what um, the pandemic actually has brought to reality that we're none of us are too far away from no. you know hor horrible things and disaster, no. Um, no. and and that all was formative for projects for all. Like it, yeah. projects for all strikes me as, and I, I did a bad job of describing it, but I had written down a non a non profit um, mm. human rights focused mm. kind of organisationally split between the UK mm. and the USA. Mm. Um, founded yeah. in 2013 you're you're the founder co-founder yeah. yes the founder yeah. and um the the well i think project for all ultimately was a i mean it was a legal entity that was a um it was about it, it was about facilitating doing more of the same basically in my spare time I had been um, building and um, developing various projects and it had got to the point where um, I could no longer afford to fund them all myself if we were going to take on more ambitious plans I needed a bit more money um, and at the time I didn't have children and I was earning consultancy rates and I was living in Tom's um, house that the that was being given to him by the British government and so you know I was lucky enough to be able to um i, I had plenty pl plenty left over to um to, to 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 test out some of the ideas and projects that i i felt would would be important but my plans got more and more ambitious and so i needed a, a legal vehicle to, to fundraise and that's what projects for all initially um was around that same time we Tom was offered a job at Diffid in Ethiopia um, and I was pretty reluctant to up sticks and kind of become a diplomatic appendage following him around the world having to kind of <laughs> reinvent everywhere I went um, and dip, you know kind of being a trailing spouse just didn't temperamentally I wasn't well 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 a good fit for it basically yeah, yeah. Um, but um, that job was really important to him. And, uh, you know, we played stone, paper, scissors and went to Ethiopia. Um, and <laughs> I <laughs> used that period of time in Addis to, um, I was pregnant. 
and um, I decided that if if there was going to be a kind of periods of time where his le- his his work led and mine followed and vice versa, that I was going to need work that I could take with me. Um, and I felt that, that that the best use of that that period of time was to do all of the setup work. So I spent pretty much a whole year, I would say, setting up the legal entity that became Projects for All, and then. And, and it was at that time that I went to stay with the Hammer tribe. And that's perhaps it was maybe it was pausing and, and having a bit being less busy um, that the, the whole idea for Hello World was able to 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 to, to grow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where Hello World really kind of was mapped out. What yeah. became Hello World? <laughs> no, fantastic. And we'll kind of move towards wrapping up. But um, Catherine McMillan, the fundraiser, like uh, it's a you know necessary necessary evil (laughs) yeah Uh, how did did this how did you get the kind of seed capital I mean like any startup it was really friends and families friends and family at first so when we built the first hub in Nigeria I think my mum put the flights on her air miles and a woman who is now one of our board members Anna Southgate a board member for our our American charity um, inherited a small amount of money or significant amount of money for our purposes um, from her mother and she and her sister donated that to the first hello hub you know it was it was piecemeal it was a little bit here and there everyone thought hello world was an absolutely absurd idea and it would fail and i didn't know if it would succeed or not either it really you know i I think perhaps no one was as surprised as me that it was the kind of success that it ended up being um Mm. in terms of in terms of its efficacy in the community um but I, i i sort of made a rod for my own back and i've been fundraising for it ever since and um well you know fundraising's um a, a, a cruel uh, game <laughs> yeah absolutely yes yeah, it's, it's time consuming as well um, i, I lo- love the model so you know you you piloted it proved it's worth measure that you, you know, drew on tom's expertise and yeah. got tom tom to measure the uh may, yeah. may not have but measure yeah, the impact yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah fantastic and and it kind of um you know it's i'd urge anyone to go to your website hello world website and um or, or to, to youtube and and watch the videos because actually I, I kind of with those early fa- found funders maybe in terms of mm. on paper it sounded bonkers but actually when you see it in the video and you see you constructing the these hubs and and interaction um mm. it's it's phenomenal what what i probably love most about it is it's by the community for the community mm. so it's mm. Mm. and this is you know you've clearly used all of your learnings through life mm. to get this project right you drew drew on all of mm. those that expertise mm. um because that stuff you know not you don't want to be that um no. you know that that school that was funded 20 years ago that as soon mm. as the funder left they stopped using it sure. um you know which yeah. is great i think there are too many projects uh being cooked up in think tanks in London and New York that are being kind of foist onto unsuspecting communities because of course you know we still think that because we're Harvard educated we automatically know best and we'll come up with the solutions or or, or, or Mm. worse we'll hunt around for problems so that we can fit our solutions to them and I see a lot of that um and I think that that's really dangerous. It's 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 worse than useless in my view, and it, it undermines the, fa- the the kind of cultural capital and the fabric of a community. The the, the 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 fundamental principle of Hello World is that the community has the cultural capital to. Um, change improve craft and shape their community and their lives and our job is to um with humility and respect help 
to facilitate that with certain tools that they may not have had access to. Um, and I think that access to the world's body of knowledge can really significantly um, help a community's development um, and it can enable children to learn and play and tell their story and advocate for their rights and all of those sorts of things but we only do so with the full partnership of the community and they take the lead and we play a supporting role um, because I don't speak their language I don't understand their cultural nuances um, I'm not quite sure of the kind of power power dynamics that are going on um, they are and they um, therefore are the best um, architects of this work Mm, absolutely brilliantly put totally agree and kind of my final question really was Catherine the, the parent what mm. kind of parents are you all of these um you know your your love for education what how are you with um your kids edu education yeah. and I guess it's home it's been home education are you yeah. a good teacher well I mean I think that we have been um we've been pretty relaxed about homeschooling because um they're seven and under and I thought it was a I thought lockdown was a really nice opportunity for them to be imaginative and play and um dance around and be with them. I mean I'm lucky because they have each other so we used it we did you know we, we did lots of biking and um dancing lots of kitchen discos um lots of reading but not an enormous amount else I must I must confess I was also had it holding a newborn um but I, yeah, I, I, um, I think that my work, my, my, my work has, has influenced how I parent, but I think more importantly, my children have influenced how I work. Um, and I think that I felt very strongly about um, the, um, the, the gross inequity of just where you're born um, before I had children. And it really, really gets to me that some children will grow up with every opportunity um, and some w are born into cycles of poverty. Yeah. And that gets to me, but uh, it, it affects me even more now that I'm a parent because yeah. um, I feel it even more viscerally than I did before. Um, and I don't think it's fair that my children, you know, have been given and, you know, that they've, they have essentially a charmed, handed a charmed life from from day one and that other children haven't um my children come have come with me to hello world builds um Great. because i don't want to be apart from them for long periods of time and um so that was the the, the most um that was the way to, to 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 manage it um and it's made me better at my job because i think that i can relate to the women in the community who i who i do a lot of work with when we're building hubs um as a parent and they can relate to me as well a lot more as a parent we all have the same hopes and dreams for our children and we all laugh about the same stuff um so that's been really leveling i think um, but I think that it's not easy. I don't, you know, I don't think it, I think it's really important that I don't make it sound like it's easy to run a startup and have children and be in a uh, work, be part of a family where both parents run startups and have jobs yeah. and yeah. it's a juggle. And sometimes I feel like I'm failing at parenting and sometimes I feel like I'm failing at work. Um, but I tried to design Hello World so that it was, um, a, a, an environment that that is good for parents we have um equal paternity and maternity leave and pay um uh, unlimited um holiday allowance um and um 
uh, I if I take my children to work in London or Nepal, if if that's what feels right for me at the time, I, we can work from home if if we choose, and we've always been able to. And and the goal was to be able to attract the best talent and keep them because we're trying to face some of the world's most intractable problems. We need we need we need the best people, and and people's home lives matter, and they aren't always uh, uncomplicated. So I, yeah. I do think our our sector needs to really have a look at that because too often we have this expectation that charity work will be populated by women who are kind of doing it in their spare time while their husbands are footing the bill and certainly funders yeah. have expressed that expectation to me overtly um so yeah i think workplace justice is is also probably quite a big part of what i'm i'm trying to build at hello world yeah brilliant because i think women often bear the brunt of um trying to balance uh, work and mm. children and play yeah. and uh, totally. they often have to compromise don't they so um, and a good on you for not compromising and uh, building it into your business model as well hey it's been an absolute pleasure really enjoyed our conversation and um, well done for all what you've achieved and you for, uh, for joining me and yeah can't wait to share your story I'm so grateful that you are thank you so much Mark I really appreciate it thank you Catherine a big thank you for listening to tonight's episode. Just a wee plug that if you like what you hear, please do leave a review. Um, equally, the more people who hear this, the better. So um, share with friends and family. I'm, I'm really enjoying shining a light on some incredible stories. Um, it struck me in uh, the lockdown period based on COVID-19 that I knew or had met some incredible people. Uh, and these people hadn't necessarily had a chance or a platform to uh, share their stories. So um, I'm going to keep doing this and uh, I look forward to you listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.